I'm Gage. And I'm Ray. And you are listening to... Gore Report! I am forever convinced we will be working on our spooky voices. Forever. Forever and ever. (laughs) Spooky! Spooky! (laughs) We hope you guys are having a good week this week, as always. Man... Ten episodes. I know, we're in the double digits now, it's fucking crazy. I'm so happy. I never thought we would make it this far. No, I'm just playing, (laughs) I really did, but it's still cool though. This is definitely episode ten, and this is also going to be my first two-parter, so I'm like, I'm like really fucking excited. In between moving and everything I have going on this week, because I am moving, and I have been for about a week now, and it (laughs) fucking sucks, but when it's done, it'll be fucking awesome, but I have definitely made the time to confide myself to my research because this one's like fucking crazy on like a a number of different levels. A whole nother level, yeah. There's just so much to it. You have everything with this one. You have... Some extremely fucking awful crime that took place, as mm-hmm. well as some world famous paranormal activity. Ooh. And I well. have no clue what you're doing this week, but I do want to pause right quick and say thank you guys so, so, so much for supporting us. All the way up until this episode. We definitely appreciate all of you. If it wasn't for our listeners, then our project and our dream wouldn't have came to life, you know? We we are nothing without you. We are nothing. (laughs) We appreciate you guys so much. Thanks for all the interaction and listening and sticking with us. We hope to do this for a very long time, so. Yes. We don't have any other business to really talk about other than the exciting moment of you moving 30 minutes closer to moi. That is going to be super fucking convenient. I'm ready to, like, not live in the middle of cow pasture, Georgia. (laughs) So I think it's going to be fucking awesome. (laughs) You're in a hide your cows, hide your chickens type relationship right now. Uh, no fucking shit. Like, I... (laughs) When I can actually be inside my house and make a fucking phone call and it work, I don't know what I'm going to do with myself. <laughs> I it, know. It's small things like that you take for granted until you move out into the fucking holler. <laughs> <laughs> no, because every time I try to talk to you on the phone, it digitizes, the call drops left and right. Like, I won't know how to act. No, same. It's fucking shitty. I'm literally... I have not been excited about the busyness of the moving and, like, you know, the physical act of moving all my shit. But, man, when it's done and I'm settled in, I'm fucking ready. So, without further ado, let's get into your case because I'm super excited for this one. Yay, we're going to hell again! (laughs) First, this bulletin from the WOR newsroom. Six members of one family have been found shot to death in their night clothes in their expensive home in Amityville, Long Island. The only available information at this moment, according to the Amityville Village Police, is that the, mem- the victims have been identified as members of the DeFeo family, 
They were found by a 23-year-old son, Ronald DeFeo, who is believed to be the only surviving member of the family. Six members of the family found shot to death in their home in Amityville, Long Island. We will have further details on the 11 o'clock news. For my case this week, I'm going to be telling you about the DeFeo family murders. This took place about an hour outside of New York City in the small, sleepy town of Amityville. On the night of November 13th, 1974, six members of the DeFeo family were shot to death in their beds while they were sleeping. One year after the murders in 1975, a man by the name of George Lutz and his family moved into the DeFeo house, located at 112 Ocean Avenue. I actually think they later changed the address to 108 Ocean Avenue to, like, deter tourists. But, yeah. Okay. The Lutz family only lived in this house for 28 days before they abandoned the house, essentially, leaving all of their belongings behind. George Lutz and his wife, Kathleen, claimed that they had been driven out of the house by relentless, unexplainable paranormal phenomena, as well as extremely violent and malicious supernatural entities. The DeFeo family murders, as well as the infamous haunting of the Lutz family, later came to be known as the Amityville Horror. Oh, God. This case has inspired several books and plenty of movie adaptations over the decades. I'm like absolutely positive that all of you listening or at least most of you listening have heard of this case in some capacity yeah i've seen the movies the first film ever made that was inspired by this case is actually one of my favorite movies of all time um let me remind everyone that i'm like a huge horror nerd but uh, the one that was directed by Stuart rosenberg that came out in 1979 the original amityville horror movie oh i haven't seen that one yeah that's like one of my favorite fucking movies i saw that when i was like nine and it scared the piss out of me i saw the the updated version and then i was just like me Yeah, the one that came out in 2005 where I had Ryan Reynolds starring as George Lutz. Yeah, that's the one I saw. Yeah, that one's pretty good, too, but I honestly prefer the 1979 rendition. I thought it was actually pretty fucking scary. Well, we know what we're watching after we get off here. Right? I'm telling (laughs) you, it's good. Um, This case in its entirety has always been one that's fascinated me pretty heavily ever since I was a youngin. (laughs) This is going to, like I said, be my first two-parter because I just feel like there's way too much information to try to put in one episode. So for part one, I'm going to be discussing the murders of the DeFeo family and the true crime side to this case. Then in part two, I'm going to focus on the supernatural aspects with the famous haunting of the Lutz family. I thought that would be a cool way to kind of format the information. When I heard the news thing come on, I was like trying to contain my excitement because I was like, oh, bitch, you are not covering yeah, this case. I knew you already knew you would figure <laughs> it out immediately. So, yeah, this case has both true crime sprinkled with a little bit of spook. So. Spooky. <laughs> Spooky. So. <laughs> Buckle your seatbelts, kids, for part one of the Amityville Horror, the murder of the DeFeo family. The DeFeos were a family of seven who, in 1965, purchased a beautiful Dutch colonial-styled house located at 112 Ocean Avenue in Amityville. Ronald DeFeo Sr. and his wife, Louise DeFeo, as well as their five children, Ronald, Allison, Mark, 
Don, and John Matthew had moved to Amityville from Brooklyn in hopes of starting fresh. That's a lot of kids. Right? That's what I'm fucking saying. Uh, Ronald DeFeo Sr. was a very successful car dealer at his family-owned car dealership. Harvey Arsenon, I believe I'm pronouncing that right, uh, the author of a book released in 1982 about this case uh, titled High Hopes, The Amityville Murders, said, quote, when they moved from Brooklyn and when they found that house, they had high hopes, end quote. As I said earlier, Ronald Sr. was a very successful car dealer, and I guess he wanted to further manifest his family having a bit of the so-called American dream, per se. However, the family did have some pretty intense issues and malfunctions, amongst other things, behind the scenes. Ronald DeFeo Sr. was actually pretty abusive towards his wife and his children. He was a very angry man. Mm. When his target wasn't Louise, he would often unleash upon his eldest child, Ronald DeFeo Jr., who was also called Butch on occasion. Mm. Several of Ronald DeFeo's friends were terrified of going over to his house due to his father flying off the handle randomly into these completely livid rages. Oh, God. One of Ronald Jr.'s friends named Barry Springer described the DeFeo home was a, quote, crazy house where everyone was constantly angry and yelling at one another. There's even some mixed testimony from a few sources that I read that states that Ronald DeFeo Sr. would sometimes actually beat his wife in the presence of his son's friends. Like, Oh, hell no. Yeah, like, holy shit. So, as you can imagine, this is like a very fucking toxic environment that we have here. As Ronald DeFeo Jr. got older, he definitely experienced a harder time going through his life. Mm -hmm. Outside of his own personal hell of a home life... Ronald Jr. was also bullied pretty heavily in school. I have a question. Did the abuse start once they moved into the house, or was this like a known thing before they even moved there? From everything that I could read, I'll put it this way, I couldn't read anything from any sources that stated a time in which he wasn't an abusive asshole to his family. Oh, no. So it seems like this had just been the case with him for, you know, however fucking long. Ronald DeFeo Jr. was actually bullied pretty heavily in school. He was kind of overweight when he was in his younger preteen and teen years, mm-hmm. and the kids loved giving him a hard time about it. It's it's sad. You know kids can be fucking cruel. Um, he grew up to be kind of reclusive, and over the years, Ronald Jr.'s temper eventually grew to be just as explosive as his father's. Yeah. I mean... One person can only take so much of that shit, you know? It's like, the note here, don't bully people, folks. Let's just (laughs) fucking not. Like, let's not. You never know what someone's going through. Let's just not fucking do it. It wasn't long before Ronald Jr. and his father started getting into these regularly occurring physical altercations. Some of them being extremely violent. Don't get me wrong, physical altercations in any situation within any context is definitely not healthy or good. Definitely not. But but some of the fights that Ronald would get into with his father were like scary, like extreme to say the very least. They would usually scare the shit out of Louise and the other kids in the house, as in they were scared that one of them was going to kill the other one bad. Oh, man. So it was noted, too, at some point, 
Ronald Jr.'s mom tried to take him to a psychiatrist because she was worried about him and his increasingly violent and erratic behavior. Yeah. But he absolutely refused to see this doctor. So his parents kind of concluded that they would maybe spoil him with gifts and money and material things, which... I believe that what we're looking at here is a ticking time bomb of a dynamic. You have a very abusive father figure. He's very intimidating, very authoritarian. And you know he makes life hell for pretty much everybody. And then you have his oldest son who's on the main receiving end of all of this. And then you also look at he's being bullied in school pretty severely. And then you have his parents basically trying to bribe him into being happy and to acting right. And it's like, come on. Uh, Like what you have here, in my opinion, as I said earlier, it's a ticking time bomb of a dynamic where absolute disaster is bound to happen any second. Like, I'm sorry, you can't buy someone's happiness and contentment. His parents even bought him a $14,000 speedboat. Like $14,000 back. Yeah. $14,000 back in the 1970s. That's a lot of fucking money. I mean, I'm like in the wrong fucking profession. (laughs) Right. I mean, don't get me wrong. Like even now, 14 grand is a lot of fucking money. But back then that was like a lot. That was like a lot of fucking money. His parents, especially his mother, was hoping that maybe the shower of gifts and things would prevent Ronald Jr. from lashing out in any way on the people around him. It's just... In my opinion, I think it's a really super sad take on reality here. You know, if you really look at it. Well, surprise, kids. Ronald Jr.'s behavior did not improve. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) let's just go, you know, spoiler alert. I mean, like I said, you can't buy someone's happiness and contentment. You just can't. Right. A $14,000 speedboat and a hefty allowance isn't going to rewire a lifetime of abuse and neglect. It's just not. And that's, that's fucking bad on that. Before Ronald Jr. was 17 years old, he had been kicked out of high school and he started experimenting with mixing various different substances such as LSD, heroin, and a few different types of amphetamines, to Uh, name a few. We don't cry in this house. We We do do drugs. drugs. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, the kid wasn't doing too well, you know? After he turned 18, he was given a job at his family car dealership. And his behavior only got more intense as time went on. Ronald DeFeo Jr. was using all of his money from his parents and the job that he had with his family to buy alcohol and drugs, amongst other things. It was also around this time, around the age of 18 or 19, that Ronald Jr. started developing a very heavy interest in guns. Uh, He started buying different kinds of guns, and he was collecting them, essentially. And as you can imagine, this really wasn't a good ingredient to throw into the lifetime of dealing with abuse and internally growing blind rage plus substance abuse crockpot. (laughs) It just wasn't a good thing to throw into all that, you know? There's even a story of Ronald Jr. going on a hunting trip with one of his friends, and like... For whatever reason, I'm not sure if they got into some kind of altercation or a fight or something, but Ronald Jr.'s friend said that Ronald had gotten so angry that he had threatened to shoot him with one of the hunting rifles. Oh. Like, ultimately, he didn't, but it's like, well, all fucking righty. Like, (laughs) holy fuck. After things cooled down, Ronald allegedly pretended like the whole thing never happened. Oh, God. Yeah, that's fucking scary. He pretty much blew it off as in, like, the instance never happened. He never threatened his friend. It was just, you know, it just 
slipped past him pretty much. He was like, oh yeah, no, that didn't happen. There's another instance in which Ronald Jr. had gotten into one of these increasingly violent fights with his father, and he actually tried to shoot his dad with a 12-gauge shotgun. Allegedly, Ronald Jr. had literally put the gun on his dad's chest and pulled the trigger to find that there was nothing loaded in it. Like, scary, crazy shit. This actually made... Uh, Ronald's father, uh, Ronald DeFeo Sr., he actually wigged the fuck out and walked away and left. Like, it scared him. He was like, oh my fucking God, you just tried to fucking blow my hole through my chest. Well, you know, when you create situations and they come back to you... I mean, yeah, like, totally. Like, fuck you, DeFeo Sr., because you were an abusive prick, but at the same time... That is alarming that his son literally just blindly grabbed a rifle and was prepared to blow his fucking chest in. I just, that's a note to make. Be like, I've had enough of your shit. I'm sick and tired, and I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired of your shit. I mean, I feel you. It's just crazy. So not long after this altercation with his father, Ronald Jr. actually started to embezzle money from his grandfather and the car dealership Mm. business. If you remember, I stated that he had been given a job at the family dealership after he turned 18. Right. And from all counts, he was being paid pretty fucking well, too, to barely do anything. Like, all counts of Ronald Jr. as a worker at the family dealership were not good. Evidently, he did not do shit, and he still got paid pretty handsomely. And this wasn't enough for him. Ronald started stealing money from his job, and he even schemed a plan to stage a robbery. Oh, God. So he could get even more money. So, basically, Ronald Jr., he had been sent to the bank to deposit $1,800 in cash and about $20,000 in checks. Yeah. Uh. That's a lot of fucking money. But uh, Ronald never did any of this. Instead, he had a friend scheduled to rob him, and they were going to split the money. Then Ronald was going to go back to his family being like, hey, I got fucking robbed. And then secretly him and his friend had just split all of that and kept it. Oh, wow. So his family obviously called the police. And when police arrived to investigate, Ronald Jr. was acting very like weird and very annoyed and even kind of aggressive, which initially kind of struck the police as odd. Right. Police were wanting to know from Ronald what he was doing in the two hours after he was robbed, because evidently from the time he stated that he had been robbed to the time that he got back to his family dealership to tell the family about it, there was a two-hour gap that was totally unaccounted for. Okay. So obviously with shit like this, police are going to want you to account for that, you know? Ronald did not like this at all because this just made him more angry and more aggravated. He was being outwardly hyper-aggressive. He was getting aggravated by the repeated questions he was being asked. He couldn't account for those missing two hours. And he even started screaming at police, like, the whole nine yards. He was having a... Oh, God. Yeah, he was having a complete tantrum. And at one point, he even started banging his fist on the hood of one of the nearby cars just to, like, you know, prove how upset he was about being questioned about this. Whoa. The police ended up asking Ronald if he would accompany them to the station so he could look at some mug shots and stuff and maybe help them with identifying the person that had just allegedly robbed him, you know? Ronald agreed to do this, even told his parents he was going to do this, but mm-hmm. at the last minute, he changed his mind and backed out. And this made Ronald DeFeo Sr. 
very angry because he couldn't understand why in the fuck his son wasn't wanting to cooperate with the police, especially if he had just been robbed. Like, again, let me remind you of how much money they lost. There was 1800 in cash and 20000 in checks. That is fucking crazy. That is a lot of fucking money. So, long story short... Uh, Ronald's dad was not fucking happy about this. Oh, of course not. <laughs> At all. I don't know anybody who would be okay with that. Like. Exactly. So, the police and Ronald Sr. started drawing some conclusions toward Ronald Jr. being more involved in this than what he was letting on. Right. Ronald Jr., he was not cooperating with the police. This sparked another huge fight between him and his dad. Ronald Sr. at one point even shouted at his son, quote, you have the damn devil on your back, in which Ronald Jr. screamed back at him, you fat prick, I'll fucking kill you. Oh, shit! Now, this is where I'm going to bring us to the early morning hours of November 13th, 1974. It's quiet, dark, birds are chirping. Ronald DeFeo Jr. wakes up from his sleep, reflecting on his life and his built-up emotions and whatnot, and in that moment, he makes a decision. This don't bode well. (laughs) He makes a decision that will absolutely devastate not only the DeFeo family, but also the small town of Amityville. If you remember me saying earlier, Ronald Jr. had picked up an intense interest in guns. He was buying and collecting his own mini arsenal, essentially. So, Ronald Jr. picks up his thirty-five caliber Marlin rifle and walks down the hall to his parents' bedroom. Ronald Jr. says that he sat and stared at them for a few minutes before firing the first of eight killing shots that would be fired that night. Mm. Ronald Jr. shot his father in the back. This shot ruptured through his kidney and exited out of his chest. The second shot was also fired into Ronald DeFeo Sr. This time, the bullet pierced the base of his spine, traveled upwards, and got lodged in his neck. Uh, like holy fuck the commotion and sound of the shots woke up ronald jr's mother louise but sadly she didn't have any time to react before her son fired the 35 caliber marlin two more times the two shots fired into louise defeo completely shattered and splintered her rib cage and caused one of her lungs to collapse Both Louise and Ronald Sr. died very quickly after being shot. Oh my god. And now that you have a little bit of that context, let's take a note on how fucking powerful this rifle was. I don't really know anything about guns if you want to be completely transparent, but this case did prompt me to go and research this rifle. Mm -hmm. The specific one that was used was a 35 caliber Marlin lever action rifle. I wanted to see not only how strong the rifle was, but I also wanted to observe the devastation caused by this rifle when the target is shot at almost point-blank range. Oh, God. And let me tell you... You're talking about a hole. We're talking about a big hole. This shit terrified me. It's easy to see how such extreme damage was caused by these shots. I watched one video in particular, some game hunter on YouTube, where he had a video of a kill that he had made using this exact rifle. Uh I watched it strictly for research, because let me tell you, I'm not a fan of watching animals being killed. I'm not, but research. 
from a distance of about 80 feet, this deer was shot in the neck by this rifle, and the neck of this deer almost exploded from the impact oh, yeah. of the shot. It died immediately. It was absolutely the saddest shit I've ever seen. Like, the shot from this rifle is insanely powerful and also insanely fucking loud. Like, oh, yeah. louder than fireworks loud. Like, I'm so serious. So, apply what I just told you, but to a scenario in which the target is being shot at very close range. Yeah. After shooting his parents to death, Ronald DeFeo Jr. then walks to the bedrooms of his two younger brothers, Mark and John Matthew. He stands over them and fires a singular fatal shot into each of them. When Mark was shot, it was reported that he did not move in any way. He just immediately died laying on his stomach. But after Ronald Jr. had shot John Matthew... He sat and watched his younger brother's body twitch for a few minutes until he died. The twitching was a neurological reaction caused from John's spinal cord being severed by the bullet. After shooting his brothers, he then heads to the room of his baby sister, Allison, who was still in grade school at the time. Upon entering the room, Ronald Jr. quickly lowered the tip of his rifle, aiming at Allison's face, and shot her at point-blank range. She died immediately. How did nobody wake up from the very first shot? Like, Oh, yeah, trust me. We're going to get into that. That's a whole part of this. Like, trust and believe, because that's a loud fucking gun. Yeah. So, next, after killing Allison, Ronald walks to the room of the second oldest DeFeo child. Her name was Dawn. She was 18 years old. Ronald Jr. shot her in the head, and the force from the shot had almost completely blown off the entire left half of her face and skull. Now, a crazy note that's mentioned a lot with this case, as you just said, is the children not waking up. Yeah. There is some talk and evidence to support the mom waking up, but not the children. Keep in mind, the shot from a thirty-five caliber Marlin rifle is loud. Like, shockingly loud. There was evidently no evidence to support that the children had woken up or even tried to move or escape. Isn't that just fucking wild? Yeah. One of the neighbors that lived next door to the DeFeos later reported that around 3, 3.15 a.m. that he heard their dog barking outside, the uh, DeFeo dog. Uh Ronald had evidently taken the dog outside and tied him up to the boathouse before he slaughtered his entire family. So the dog was barking the whole time. But how in the fuck... Was the dog heard barking, but no one yeah. heard not one of these eight shots from this rifle. I was just about to bring that up. Yeah, yeah that that's literally nuts. it baffles the fuck out of me. That's like a thing with this case. No neighbors, no nothing. No one heard nothing while this family was shot to death, but evidently their dog barking outside was heard. Wow. Yeah, crazy shit. After killing Don. Ronald cleaned himself up, started thinking of what he could use as a possible alibi. He showered, got dressed, and he put all of the bloody clothes that he was wearing, as well as the rifle, into his car, and he drove off to Brooklyn. He allegedly tried disposing of the evidence by dumping it into a storm drain. He then drove all the way back to Amityville and carried on about his workday. Like, yeah, he went to fucking work at his family dealership. What the fuck? 
And along with everyone else at the dealership, Ronald DeFeo Jr. acted absolutely shocked and concerned when his father didn't show up to work that day. It was around noon that Ronald got sent home to go check on his parents. He didn't go straight there, though. Instead, he went and picked up his girlfriend and some other friends, and they all went to the mall to hang out. The whole time, though, Ronald DeFeo Jr. is repeatedly bringing up that he hasn't been able to get a hold of his parents all day. He even used his girlfriend's phone to call his dad to kind of, like, prove that he had been trying to call him and get a hold of them. Yeah. A friend of theirs ended up inviting Ronald to meet at a local bar called Henry's that evening around 6 p.m. to drink and do their usual activities. So Ronald accepted. At 6 o'clock, he heads to Henry's, meets up with his friend. They do some heroin, have some drinks. And Ronald is still acting incredibly concerned that he can't get a hold of his father or mother. But it's like, Ronald, (laughs) you literally haven't been to check on them not one fucking time. Not once. You got sent home at noon to go check on them. And here you are at 6 p.m. crunk as a fucking skunk. And yet you still haven't done anything about it. What the fuck, Ronald? What the fuck, Ronald? (laughs) Anywho, it's only a couple of hours into hanging out. (laughs) That's great. Anywho, it's only a couple of hours into hanging out at the bar that Ronald finally says, you know what, you guys, I really do need to go and check on my family and make sure they're okay, so he leaves. I mean, if you're going to act that concerned about it, you should have left, like, hours ago. That's what I'm saying. Again, you got sent home at noon, and here it is, 6, 7, 8 p.m., you're lit the fuck up, and you are just now deciding to go check on them. That's a fucking no. I mean, yeah, he's trying to build an alibi at this point. Exactly. He wasn't gone for very long. He comes rushing back into Henry's a very short time later, acting completely shocked. He's hysterical, and he's... He's frantically begging for people to help him, saying that he just went home and both of his parents had been shot to death. Ronald and a few of his friends hop into the car and go back to the DeFeo home. It was there that one of Ronald Jr.'s friends goes inside and sees the bodies of Louise and Ronald DeFeo Sr. face down in their bed. Another friend that had tagged along called the police. It only took the authorities maybe 10 minutes to get there. When police arrived on scene, Ronald Jr. was crying and sobbing, hysterically so, and the police at first really thought that he was broken up about this. He was in no way being looked at as a person of interest at this point. Okay. Police investigate the home, and they find the bodies of Louise and Ronald DeFeo Sr., as well as the bodies of Mark, John, Allison, and Don. All had been shot to death, and all the bodies were found face down in their beds. No signs of a struggle. (sighs) Toxicology reports revealed that no drug of any kind were present in any of the victims' bodies either. Police specifically also noted that there was so much blood around the bodies of Allison and Dawn that they couldn't even initially tell that they had been shot. It was a complete bloodbath. Oh, God. Oh, my God. During the initial questioning, Ronald Jr. gave police a name, saying that the person who had committed this crime had to have been Louis Fellini. 
Ronald went on to tell the police that this Louis Fellini had a strong grudge against his family due to some dispute that had happened between him and his father a few years prior. There were accusations in a lot of ways that this crime was related to, like, the mob, like, organized crime. Okay. And this possibly could have been a mob killing. This really, really concerned police, too. So, like, with them thinking that this whole mob connection could be a real possibility, police actually took Ronald DeFeo Jr. into protective custody. I mean... Oh, my God. You think... Police are thinking that if this is connected to the mob in any way and this kid's whole family just got fucking slaughtered, then in their minds, they're like, oh, shit, they'll definitely come back to get the one they missed. Right. You know? So, yeah, they took Ronald into protective custody at the police station. Ronald Jr. gives a written statement to police saying that he had been at home stayed up until a little past 2 a.m. watching TV. He said that he didn't go to bed that morning until around 4 a.m. He said that he then got up around 6 a.m., used the bathroom, couldn't go back to sleep, so he decided to go into work early. He also added that later that day he had saw his girlfriend and some other friends, all the while he was frantically trying to get a hold of his parents because he was worried. Then he recants, leaving Henry's bar to go home, finding the bodies of his parents, going back to the bar to grab help, then going back to eventually call police. Mm. Ronald Jr. is also hounding pretty heavily on this Louis Fellini guy. He went on to tell police that Lewis had lived with them for a short time, like he had lived with him and his family. Okay. Uh, Ronald Jr. said that Louis Fellini had actually helped his father, Ronald Sr., build a hiding spot in the basement of the house that was filled with jewels, gems, and lots of money, apparently. Kind of like a makeshift safe, pretty much. Right. Ronald also went on to tell police that he was using different drugs, such as heroin and amphetamines, and like... Get this shit. Ronald also tells police that he had set one of his dad's boats on fire to collect the insurance payout. Like, what the fuck? What? He is he is very forthcoming with just volunteering all of this fucking information. Like, he's just talking. However, though, he did answer all of the questions aptly. He's been very open and honest regarding his drug use and whatnot. So police kind of took this as a good note, and he still wasn't being looked at as a possible suspect. Okay. That did not last long, though, because eventually police did, in fact, find something a little fucking weird, (laughs) to say the very least. While investigating, police search through Ronald Jr.'s room, in which they find several boxes that are labeled for different guns. If you remember, I brought up the point earlier that he had gotten into gun collecting, and he pretty much had a mini arsenal in his bedroom. Right. One of the boxes police found was a box labeled for a thirty-five caliber Marlin rifle, which they had already figured out at this point that that was the murder weapon. Oh, God. So, so Police also found out about the fake robbery that had taken place. If you remember me saying that, Ronnie had went to deposit $20,000 in checks and he basically staged a robbery so he could split the money with his friend. Police found out about that. So, yeah, Ronald starts to progressively look worse and worse in the eyes of the authorities. Right. 
Police had started questioning Ronald again. He's very adamant about still bringing up this Louis Fellini guy. He's really, really trying to get the murder pinned on him. Mm. But at this point, police are already suspecting that Ronald had to have been involved in some way because some points of his story just aren't adding up. So police read Ronald DeFeo Jr. his rights and started intently questioning him. And this aggravated Ronald Jr. quite a bit and he started getting pissed. He's saying to police that he doesn't need to be read his rights because he wasn't involved in any way. He even told police that he didn't even need a lawyer because he was just a witness with nothing to hide. So he's just getting, like, aggravated as fuck. Right. However, as the questioning continues, Ronald Jr.'s story of events starts falling apart. You'll also come to learn in this case that Ronald, throughout this whole time, he gives several stories when discussing what happened. So, you know, keep that in mind. Right. Police start honing in on the time the murders happened, and eventually Ronald does break down a bit, and they get a little information out of him. Ronald tells police that he was actually home when the murders took place. He says that the murders happened between 2 and 4 a.m., and that he was only there because the murderer... Louis Fellini had forced him to watch while each member of his family was shot to death. Oh, God. Ronald starts talking about what takes place after the murders, though, and this is where he kind of implicates himself a little bit. He tells police that he had taken the rifle and some clothes and other evidence and went and dumped them in a storm drain outside of Amityville. If you remember me saying that earlier, Mm -hmm. that was a thing that he did, so... Police are basically pretending to believe that Ronald was forced to do all of this. They're playing along with his story, trying to see what evidence and information they can collect. It wasn't long after this confession that Ronald actually breaks down completely and confesses to the full murder. He initially tells police that at around 3 a.m., he woke up and heard what sounded like the rest of his family in another room conspiring to kill him. He then says that a cloaked female figure appeared to him with the rifle and offered it to him so he could kill his family. He told police that after he shot his father to death that something overtook him and he just couldn't stop. Only one person had access to a handgun between my mother and father. He never got a chance to get it. She did. So everybody else was offensive. As far as I'm concerned, really everybody was offensive. Ronnie's trial started a year after the murders on October 14th, 1975, and the only real questions that were being asked at his trial were, what was Ronald DeFeo Jr.'s mental state at the time the crimes took place? Was he sane, or should he spend the rest of his life in prison for brutally slaughtering his entire family? DeFeo appeared for arraignment at the 1st District Court in Hopal, where he was ordered held without bail. As his standard practice in a multiple murder case, he was arraigned in only one of the killings, that of his 12-year-old brother, Mark. The court agreed to let a physician treat DeFeo for injuries to his face, but it refused to allow a psychiatric examination for him, which had been required. Psychiatric examination for DeFeo. Well, based upon my uh, conversations this morning with the defendant, uh, Ronald DeFeo, and... uh, 
based upon the nature of the charge and that he's alleged to have taken the lives of six men this morning, uh, Judge Walker. In my opinion, I uh, don't think he presently understands the uh, nature of the proceedings, and I don't think he can therefore properly assist in his defense. Now, what was your Simon Simon says he'll continue trying to get the psychiatric examination for his client, and he has not ruled out the possibility that he may enter a plea of insanity. The case is expected to go to the grand jury on Monday. At that time, the district attorney will enter evidence in all six murders. When Ronald DeFeo Jr. takes the stand, he tells the jury that he was actually hearing voices from inside the house telling him to kill his whole family. Like, the house had made him do it, essentially. He also went on to say that he was possessed by evil spirits from within the house that caused him to kill his family. Spooky! He even had one story where he said that his sister Dawn was actually involved in the shooting. Oh. Which is fucking weird, but yeah. In those statements, you see the beginning fragments of the very famous Amityville Horror. As I just said, Ronald gave many, many conflicting stories as to what happened the night of November 13th, 1974. In some cases, he actually seems like he's reveling in the fact that he had killed his parents and siblings. He was acting as if he enjoyed it. Two quotes from Ronald DeFeo Jr. in regards to killing his entire family states, quote, I believe it felt very good, end quote, end quote. I remember feeling very good, end quote. During the prosecution, a psychiatrist had came to the conclusion that Ronald DeFeo Jr. was suffering from antisocial personality disorder, but this diagnosis also does not deem him to be insane, not one bit. He was completely aware when he did this, so it was also speculated at the trial that there may be a possibility that more than one person was involved. Mm -hmm. The prosecution took note on how all six bodies were found face down in their beds with no signs of a struggle or means to escape. The toxicology reports, if you remember me saying, showed that there were no drugs, alcohol, or any foreign substances either. And then you bring up the point of... How in the fuck did no one hear these rifle shots? No neighbors, no nothing. That's the the part that's getting me really bad right now. Yeah, the only thing that was heard by the neighbors was the DeFeo's dog barking outside, which is wild to me. An experiment as part of this trial was also conducted by investigators to test how loud the shot blasts from the 35 caliber Marlin rifle were. It was concluded that there, in fact, was no evidence supporting that there was a silencer used on the murder weapon. The shot from the Marlin was so loud that it could be heard from four and a half blocks away. Yeah, I was going to say, like, that rifle is unbelievably loud yeah four and a half blocks away they heard the the singular shot so like holy shit that would probably mean that hearing the shot in the same room as you could literally be fucking deafening yeah so one of the first police officers to arrive on scene at 112 ocean avenue he still states to this day that he finds it very hard to believe that ronald defeo jr fired these shots into his family without someone waking up or trying to escape it's just fucking weird yeah the medical examiner that conducted the autopsies on the defeo family also stated at ronald jr's trial that he didn't think it was possible at all for the crimes to be committed by 
by one person with the way the things were laid out there are just lots of fucking aspects to this whole case that even today are still shrouded in mystery all evidence considered, on November 21st, 1975, Ronald DeFeo Jr. was charged with six counts of second-degree murder and sentenced to life imprisonment without the possibility of parole for each count. Mm. Ronald DeFeo Jr. was then sent to Greenhaven Correctional Facility located in Beekman, New York. And that's where I'm going to conclude part one of the Amityville Horror That was case. a lot. Oh, yeah. It's a lot. <laughs> that was a lot. And then we have a whole other part going into the paranormal aspect of this. Yeah. Like I said, the way that I wanted to format the information, I wanted part one to be the actual DeFeo family murders and all of that. Um, the true crime side of this. And then in part two, I'm going to cover the haunting that happened to the Lutz family when they moved into the house a year after everything happened. Because everyone knows about that. A lot of people think it's a hoax. A lot of people think it's genuine. I just want to touch base on all of it because it's fucking wild. There's like two whole sides to this. Yeah. And I mean, there has to be. I mean, just the fact that the murders themselves is what I believe sparked all the paranormal stuff. Yeah, that's what everyone thinks. Yeah, because, you know, whether or not he heard these voices and whether or not there was some unseen force behind this, it's brutal. It's brutal and it's violent. And whenever you have violent deaths like that the energy lingers yes it does because that's my point it's like it doesn't matter what underlying cause there was an entire family lost their life yeah you know what i'm saying so yeah. like i agree with you that's why i'm super excited when we come back with part two i'm going to do a deep dive into george and kathleen lutz and what they allegedly experienced how it literally imprinted american horror media as we know right. it it's just like a fucking lot it's absolutely crazy to think about like the murders themselves but then the paranormal aspect of it, it's like, oh my god, hold on to your fucking ass at this point. Yeah, because I mean, a lot of people think that it was nothing more than a really clever money-making hoax. And I can kind of see that, but I mean, they only lived there for 28 days and then they abandoned all of their shit and left. So I just, I'm in the gray area with it. I see where both sides could be true there's yeah. a lot but we'll be sure to touch on that in part two in so part two. so thanks you guys for listening we hope you enjoyed this week's episode if you would like to follow me and ray and all of our fucking weirdness on yeah. any social media platforms you can find us on twitter at go report on instagram at go report podcast on facebook at go report a true crime podcast yes so, as always, we love you guys. We're going to go watch cartoons. Abso-freaking-lutely. Do you really want to watch the Stuart Rosenberg 1979 Amityville Horror? Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. yeah. Okay. Well, one change for this episode. Instead of cartoons, we're going to go watch the original Amityville Horror movie. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, guys. We love you. We'll see you next week. Bye. Bye.